if you have a Bible and you'd like to, you can turn to Luke chapter 15. We are going to look at an entire chapter of Luke this morning. We are continuing our study in the uh, Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. And as we refocus on his life and on his ministry and this morning on his teaching, uh, we're trying to discover how we who call ourselves our, his disciples uh, can conform more to his image, to who he is. Uh, as our Lord and as our Savior, and we're also trying to uh, introduce him uh, to those of you who may not know Jesus in that way and help you to examine uh, his claims and how they may uh, impact your life and how you can, too, experience uh, his grace and his mercy. Uh, The reason we're going to take John 15 as a lump is because that's how it is presented. Uh, In just a few moments, we will see that Jesus is responding to some folks who are not very happy with him, some church people, in fact, that don't like the way he's behaving because he's uh, welcoming uh, the non-church, the unbelievers, the people that are not uh, quite as nice and cleaned up as you and me, so to speak. And he's spending a lot of time with them. And these are, these are bad folks. These are folks that don't behave properly. They're people that have bad motives. They're immoral people. They're people that, that kind of don't really believe in God to start with. But for some reason, they're intrigued by Jesus. And they're coming to him in droves. There, there are lots of these sinner-type people that are hanging out with, with Jesus. And the church people are getting a little offended by that. And they're calling uh, Jesus to account. And Luke 15 is his response. Jesus tells three stories in Luke 15, and we're going to look at all three of those stories this morning. The first two go together, and then the, second, the third story is actually an amplification of the first two. It's told in just a little bit different way. Uh, but it will hopefully help us understand Jesus' attitude towards both those who who think they are unrighteous, the sinners, so to speak, and Jesus' attitude towards those who would consider themselves self-righteous. I was listening to the radio this week. It just happened I was driving home to grab some lunch one day. And uh, on the radio, this radio, uh, the fellow on the radio was talking about a, uh, a person who came into a restaurant and this was a person that was kind of uncouth. He was not a very socially uh, welcoming kind of person. He was the kind of guy that, you know, if you kind of knew who he was, you probably wouldn't want to be around him too much. And he said he noticed that folks in the restaurant had different reactions. Some of them kind of, kind of stared and whispered and said, is, is that who I think it is? And uh, was apparently a person of some notoriety. Uh, and uh, some other folks just kind of openly surprised. They kind of, kind of stared and gawked. Uh, a couple of people, he said, actually got up and walked out of the restaurant because they didn't want to be seen with that kind of person. (laughs) I think that's probably a good description of self-righteousness. When you look at someone else and say, you know what, I'm better than that man. I'm better than that woman. And I don't want to be seen around them. They really uh, are not the kind of folks with whom uh, I would like to keep company. I think entire churches can have that kind of attitude, quite frankly. I think people who consider themselves disciples of Jesus at times can look at other people in a bit of a condescending way. Say, you know what, they're, they're not quite as good as me. I had a fellow stop me after the first service and he said, you know, I was in Starbucks this morning and the thought went through my mind, why aren't these folks going to church? <laughs> he said, I thought I was pretty good for going to church and was kind of judging that they weren't too good. And some of you have Starbucks cups in your hands. He didn't like you very much if you happen to be in there when he went by this morning. But you know what? A lot of us are like that. You know, we have this bar that we think we've set and that, and that we're, we're pretty self-righteous. And so we can create an atmosphere of kind of a, an us versus them instead of a welcoming atmosphere where we say, you know what? We just want to tell you about Jesus because we've experienced his grace and mercy and we didn't deserve it. So we want to help pass it on to you. Sometimes we start to think we're pretty good folks. 
And this is God's response to that. Let me give you a very brief definition before we jump into the passage. Self-righteousness, if I were going to define it, I would define it this way. It's thinking that we deserve God's love and acceptance based on either our works or the fact that we are better than others. So I might say, you know what? I do a lot of good stuff. I go to church. I teach a Sunday school class. I give money, uh, help with charities. I spend some of my time uh, taking care of some other folks, whatever the case may be. But we look at the things we do and we say, God should love me because of that. I deserve God's love. I deserve God's acceptance because doggone it, I've worked hard to get it. Or we may say, you know, I am so much better than (laughs) so-and-so. I might not be the best, but boy, when I compare myself to this person, I really look good. That is self-righteousness. Jesus wants to talk to us about that this morning. I'm not going to read all the way through the whole passage at once, but I am going to read for you the first two stories, uh, which are the shorter ones. We're going to read through verse 10, talk about those, and then we'll look at the third story. Hear the word of God. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my my sheep that was lost. Just so. I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Now, Jesus isn't saying that there are righteous people that don't need repentance. He's making a point about those who understand repentance. Second story. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the one, I found the coin that I had lost. Just so. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Father, perhaps this morning as we uh, as we listen to the introduction to the sermon, we were quick to think that we are not self-righteous. Uh, that we would never be that arrogant or that uh, boastful, uh, that we, we certainly understand that it is by grace that we're saved uh, and that we share that grace with others. But Lord, I would guess that there are blind spots in each one of our lives, those of us in this room who call ourselves disciples. There may be even subtle ways in our hearts where we do not have compassion for the lost, where we do not have the heart of one who seeks that which is lost. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would teach us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you want us to know today. Uh, We have worshiped you in song. We have said that you are holy. You alone are holy. We have have exhorted ourselves, arise, my soul, arise, so that we might sing of your praise. Father, may those not just be words that that we... uh, that we sing, but may they be the prayer of our hearts as we now come to your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Confess my sin and ask that you would forgive me that I wouldn't stand in the way of what you want to say to us. Lord God, may we hear your voice speaking to us this morning and embrace your truth and respond accordingly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in Luke chapter 15, it starts out with uh, an accusation. Jesus is being accused of not recognizing the righteousness 
of the scribes and the Pharisees, but rather he is ignoring it. Uh, and so we find a place where Jesus is being confronted by some folks who think that, that they're pretty good and believe that, that Jesus ought to be hanging out with them instead of, the, you know, kind of the scum over here that he's, he's chosen to be with. In fact, they would say uh, he's befriending those people who care nothing about God. And I think I could put myself in their place and, and, and maybe get a little taste of that and understand it. Say, so, you know, I'm, I, I hang around people that, that come to church every week. I hang around people that, that come to, to hear God's word. I hang around people that come to worship him. And, and in some way, doesn't that count for something? <laughs> and so they look at, at this situation and they see Jesus who is spending a lot of his time welcoming these folks and going to their houses and having meals with them. And he's not spending time with the people who consider themselves righteous. And they're saying, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right. We're spending our efforts and our energy and our time and, and our resources uh, to please God. And to act accordingly, and you won't even recognize that, you're spending all of your time with sinners. So in response to that accusation, Jesus tells, begins by telling two stories. And the first two stories are about a lost sheep, 1% of this person's uh, income and this person's livelihood, and then a lost coin, which represents 10% of uh, a person's income and livelihood. And in these two stories, Jesus describes God in terms of a searcher. The one who lost the sheep does what? He isn't satisfied and say, well, 99 is good enough. He's a good sheep herder. He knows business. He knows that even 1% counts for something, and it's very important. He says, I'm not going to be satisfied with letting this one sheep wander off. I'm going to go find it. And he searches the countryside diligently until he finds it. And then he comes back, and he tells everyone, I had a lost sheep, but now it's here, so let's celebrate. He's been searching diligently. The woman who loses a coin, which represents 10% of her income, so a little bit more important. It's not 1%. It's a, it's a little bit more value here. And she, and maybe it's her inheritance. Maybe it's her savings. Maybe it's something that her, her husband left to her. It could be that she's a widow, and this is all she has to depend on. But she had 10 coins this morning, and now at lunchtime, there's only nine. And she can't find it. And she is going to walk around the house and search the house and search diligently until she finds it. A couple weeks ago, I couldn't find my car keys. You ever have that experience? Drives you absolutely nuts. All the teenagers are going, no, this never happened to me. Just wait. It will someday. And I, I, I'm going, I got to get to work. I've, I've got to get to work. I got to find my car keys. I'm walking around. I promise you, I'm searching the house at least five or six minutes until I look in my hand. <laughs> there are my car keys. <laughs> I'm holding my car keys while I'm looking for them. Would have saved me a lot of time if I realized that. This woman tears the house apart. This isn't a set of car keys. This is something of great value to her. And she finally finds it. What does she do? She rejoices. She's greatly relieved. And Jesus says, friends, that's God. God is defined in these stories by one who searches diligently. Secondly, Jesus says in the story that he defines human repentance as what activity? The activity of being found. (laughs) What did the sheep do to be found? He wandered off. What did the coin do to be found? It got lost. There's not a whole lot of activity there that speaks well for the sheep, (laughs) okay? The fact is is that in this story, in these two stories, what is uh, described as human repentance, being restored to a right relationship, is simply being found. Remember the key verse in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus is saying to these religious folks, you're missing it. 
These guys are lost. And just like a, a, a sheep herder would look for a sheep, just like a woman who had 10 coins would look for one she lost, so God is seeking, and human repentance is defined as being found. Verses 4 and 6 lay that out very cl- quick, clearly. But he also connects human repentance with what? With divine joy, with a party. Everybody likes to go to a party, right? And you, you don't need a whole lot of reason to celebrate, right? You can just, we had, a, we had a pig roast at our house the other night. You know what? We just decided we wanted to cook a big old pig and see how it turned out. We had a bunch of people over and had a blast. That was the only reason. It wasn't anybody's birthday. It wasn't a national holiday. We just wanted to have some fun. You don't need a whole lot of reason to celebrate, even the, even the smallest reason to celebrate. Let's get some friends together. This one sheep was lost. One coin was lost. They're both found. And what's the reaction? The reaction is let's have a party. And Jesus says, you want to know what God thinks about when a sinner is found? He wants to have a party. God is crazy about you. And he celebrates human repentance. He celebrates people being found and brought to him. Friends, I think probably most people in this room, including myself, struggle greatly with that. We don't truly appreciate the fact that God is absolutely nuts about us. We think, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I've put my faith in him. I haven't necessarily done a whole lot of good things. And and because of that, God is obligated to love me. But he's probably sitting up in heaven with his arms folded thinking, boy, oh boy, I just, you know, I wish they'd get their act together. I think most Christians, if if we went around the room, I said, what do you think is God's attitude towards you? Which, by the way, I think shapes your entire life. I would guess that by and large, we have a relatively unhealthy understanding of the absolute joy that God takes in us when he finds us. You don't do anything to get found. You simply are found. You're the object. You receive God's enduring affection. And that's how God feels to the point where he says to all the angels, let's have a party. And I believe in these two stories, Jesus is saying to these Christian or these, uh, these church folks, I think he's saying to them, I'm going to let you play God for a minute. If you lost a sheep, if you lost a coin, if you lost something that was precious to you, what would you do? You would look for it till you found it, right? My my wife Cindy's family, you know, does anybody keep like a family tree where you've gone back and looked at like your roots and how how far back? Our family has our information back to like the early 1800s. Cindy's family, I think she has a cousin in Minnesota that has absolutely nothing to do in the long, cold winters. And... um, they have their family back to like 1489. I'm not kidding you. It's unbelievable. Uh, it's a little weird, actually. It kind of spooked me out a little when I first heard it. But um, you go back and you look and you find all their, their heritage back in Europe and how, when they came over the United States and where they settled and how they kind of moved slowly west and ended up in southwest Minnesota. But in the mid-1800s, there's a story of this little boy who got lost in one of the families. And he was lost for like several days. And they were searching all over the place for him, and they finally found him in a neighboring Indian tribe that was down the road, and he just wandered off. And, and I don't know if it was, a, if it was a, a who it was in the tribe, but somebody found him and just took him back to the tribe and just was, you know, gave him a place to sleep and food to eat. But you can imagine how the parents felt. You can imagine how panicked they had to have been. And several days later, they finally go to this Indian village and find their son. You think about how happy they were. I guarantee you they had a pig roast or a cow roast or or, or chicken roast or something. They had some huge celebration where they called everybody in and said, our son who has lost is found, let's celebrate. She says, you get to play God for a minute. Suppose you lost something as simple as a sheep, something as simple as a lost coin. Wouldn't you look for it until you found it? And he defines God as the seeker of those who are lost. But the third story takes on a radically different dimension. Because Jesus not only wants to uh, challenge them to play God, 
But now he wants them to put themselves in the shoes of the one who is lost. And so he tells them a third story, and it goes like this, beginning in verse 11. Maybe you've heard this one before. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. That word reckless, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean immoral, but it can be. Uh, but it's, it's more like uh, foolish, uh, unwise. Uh, it could mean that he was doing some shifty and shady things, but, but it certainly means that he was not spending his money very, very carefully. And when he spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, or it's another way of saying when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, against, and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, <clears throat> excuse me, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be worthy to, worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he called out to the one of the servants and asked these, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I'm not going to take time to go through step-by-step step the story of the prodigal son. I could probably preach three or four sermons just on that particular story, but it, I want you to see the tie-in and the connection with the first two stories because Jesus is simply making the same argument for the heart and the passion of God as a seeker of lost souls as he tells the story, but he's no longer giving his listeners the opportunity to play God. They now are taking on the role of one of these two boys. And in this story, Jesus describes God as a father who wants a son and not a slave. In verse 12, what does he do? He lets the younger son go. The younger son comes to him and says, Dad, would you give me my share of the inheritance? And the father doesn't argue with him. He doesn't fight with him. He doesn't, doesn't punish him for asking such a, such a question. He simply gives him his 
his share of the inheritance. Now, you need to understand in our day and age, it's not unusual for a family member to say, hey, mom or hey, dad, can I, can I have a little bit of money early? Uh, can you help me out a little bit? We have this expense or that expense. It's not unusual for a parent to say, you know, I want to divest some of this and save some money on taxes, and so we're going to give a little bit to the kids ahead of time. That, that happens quite often, or trust funds are set up. But in Jesus' day and age, you, to ask your father for, for the inheritance before your father had passed away was the greatest insult you could offer to your father. It was as if to say, I wish you were dead. You couldn't have said crueler words than this young son said to his father. He said, I don't, I don't want to be identified as your son. And he showed that even further by as soon as he could liquidate everything he'd been given, he got out of town. I don't want to be with you. I don't want to be, I don't want your last name. I want to go and be myself. All I want is what you can provide me from a material standpoint. And the father lets him go. Why? Because the father knew to force his son to stay would create a slave instead of a son. And the father in this story is not interested in slaves. He's interested in having a relationship with his children. And obviously the son, as we read the story, makes a mess of it. He loses everything. He squanders it on reckless living, whatever that might have meant. He might have you know, invested in some bad schemes. He may have done, thrown a bunch of parties and had, had a bunch of hangers on until it was all gone. But he gets to the point where he's despairing. He gets to the point where he's at the end of his rope and he's got to figure out what he's going to do. Now, notice in, in this thought process, and I'm not going to read it for you again, but notice in the thought process, he doesn't say, you know what, I've really blown it. I've really done something wrong. I've really, I, I've really messed this up badly. I need to go and ask my father's forgiveness. He doesn't say that. He's not repentant yet. He's still, he's still kind of conniving. And he goes, you know what? I'm starving to death, and I got to figure out a way to keep body and soul together. There's no way my old man's going to let me back in the house. But if I go back and I say, you know what? I'll just be a servant. I bet he'd have enough compassion to, to let me back in. He's looking at his father through the lens of his own life. He isn't giving his father a chance to be gracious. He isn't, he, he's, he's, he's putting his character on his dad and he's assuming how his father will react. But he, he's, he's not doing anything other than trying to figure out a way to keep body and soul together. But he's coming to a father who wants a son. And so as the son has made a mess of it, he's coming back home, what happens? The father sees him from a long way off. And what does it say in verse 20? And he arose and he came to his father while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, I got to tell you a little bit more about Jewish culture because when this son came back to town, first of all, when he left, everybody knew. Small Jewish village, everybody knows everybody's business. There's no question that, that everybody in the town, probably a lot of them are, are extended family members, cousins, aunts, uncles, everybody knew this guy left and they knew the terms upon which he left and they were all ashamed. He had disgraced the entire village. So now this kid comes back, this no good child, the black sheep of the family comes back. As he's walking through town, as was the custom of Jesus' day, it was there a good chance that the townspeople were yelling curses at him. There's a good chance that the townspeople were picking up dirt or dung and throwing it at him. There's a good chance that some of the townspeople were picking up rocks and pelting him with them as he walked through town to say, you've disgraced us and we're not letting you off the hook. And so the father who's, who's standing on his front porch or at the front door looks out and he hears the commotion and he sees what's going on. And as he looks, he sees his boy, disgraced, his clothes all tattered, probably lost 20 or 30 pounds and being abused and being judged 
as the black sheep of the family by the townspeople, by some of his relatives, maybe by some of his brothers and their families and their kids. And what does he do? He does what no good Jewish man would do. You don't ever run if you're a dignified Jewish father. You walk. And everybody walks behind you. And everybody walks at your pace. And this man, who was a very successful businessman, who was very well thought of in his community, who was probably a civic leader in his town, who was a man of dignity, threw dignity out the window and ran with a reckless abandon to get to his boy. Why? Because he saw an opportunity. He saw a chance to move somebody from being a slave to being a son. And he threw his arms around him. He threw his cloak around him as if to say, if you want to throw rocks at somebody, if you want to throw dung on somebody, throw it on me. But this is my boy. He hugged him and he kissed him and he loved him unconditionally. Why? Because of, why? I don't know why, because I can't see my notes now. Because he wants a son and he offers protection and he offers blessing, even at the cost of his own dignity to rescue this child who has now come home. And he wants the slave to see that he's a cherished son. So what happens? The son doesn't get it yet. He starts in on a speech, right? Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He probably is kind of wondering what's going on, but he's thinking, I'm going to stick to the plan <laughs> and, and try to negotiate my way back into somehow into the good graces so I can, so again, so I can get the meal. It just kind of goes right over his head. I don't think he, he saw it. So he starts in on the speech. I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, and you're not supposed to say this at home, but excuse me for paraphrasing, but this is, would you shut up? <laughs> Just be quiet. Say, go get the rope. Go get the best rope. Get the one that's hanging in my closet. You know the one that we save for special occasions? Go get that. You know the ring that you wear that identifies you as a member of our family that's in this top desk drawer in my dresser? Go get that and get some shoes because slaves go around barefoot, not sons. Go get all that and dress them up and clean them up and take care of them. And by the way, call everybody and tell them we're going to have a party. Let's kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate because my son who is dead is alive. The father never identifies him as a slave. He never lets him even have that kind of slave conversation that the son wants to have. He says, we're not going there. You're my child. You've come home. You were dead, and now you're alive. You belong to me. And he's got to tear that slave mentality out of the, the heart and the mind of this child. And he has to do something that is so nuts so crazy as to welcome him back, smelling like he's been in the pig trough. No, no dignified Jewish father would do this. E even the reasonable father who maybe would let him back in would at least give him a lecture. He doesn't do any of that. He does what seems to us to be the most ridiculous thing in the world. He hugs this child. Why? Because this father, who by now I hope you know is God, <laughs> says to the lost, I'm crazy about you. You're my child. I want you to come home. And that's the first question we have to answer this morning. Have you come home? Maybe this morning it's time for you to come home. Maybe it's time for you to understand that you're not a slave. God doesn't want to treat you that way. God wants to welcome you as his child. But you can't negotiate. I want you also to see in this, this story that, that Jesus defines repentance as a response to the father's love. The son doesn't complete his negotiation. In verse 21, the son's just cut off and he doesn't go back and say, no, no, wait a minute, dad. <laughs> Let me finish what I was saying. I'm no longer worthy because he just is silent. As the father says, bring the good stuff, put it on him. Let's take care of him. And you've got to stop negotiating with God. If you're here saying, you know what, God, I'll, I'll love you on these terms. 
you're a million miles away from the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Your heavenly father says, you, you know what, just, just shut up. <laughs> Let me love you. You're precious to me because of who you are, not because of what you've done or what you could do. I will not have slaves. I will only have children. And you must come to me on those terms. So the son doesn't complete the negotiation. That's the first step in repentance. And then secondly, he doesn't refuse the father's gift of forgiveness. The symbols, the robe, the ring, the sandals, those are all symbols of what? That he belongs to the family. He could have said, dad, I'm a mess. I smell like a pig. Don't put the robe on me. He could have said, dad, I, I, don't give me that ring. That, I, I don't deserve that ring. But he didn't. He accepted the father's forgiveness for what it was. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in Christ and accepted God's forgiveness for what it is in all of its beauty and all of its glory? And then Jesus reinforces the celebration theme. What does the father say to the entire village? Verse 23, come on, we're gonna have a party. <laughs> the son of mine's dead is now alive. We're going to celebrate. And here's where the story begins to change, friends. And, and, and I'm gonna go just a few more minutes because this is the point that I really wanna come to. Here's where the story begins to change because he begins to make this a public announcement of the son coming and people are gonna have to begin to make a choice. Am I going to accept this one the way the father has accepted him or am I gonna stand at a distance and say he should have never done that with that rotten kid? And now Jesus is beginning to talk to the church. He's beginning to talk to people who consider themselves religious. He's beginning to talk to those people who consider themselves in some way righteous and right before God. And he says, what are you gonna do with this one? Is your heart going to be towards these sinners, these tax collectors, these unlovable people? Will you have the same heart as the father? And the village has to make a decision, but there's also somebody else that has to make a decision, and that's the older brother. And the older son comes in and hears all the noise and the dancing. He calls the servant, says, what's going on? And the servant explains everything that, that happens, that, that this brother is, who's been lost is now found. And in verse 28, we see an insight into the brother's heart that is not too pretty. But he was angry and refused to go in. You got to understand that, that, that the brother who stays outside has just insulted the father on the same level that the younger brother did when he asked for the inheritance. For your father to have a party and to call everybody in means you go to the party. As a son, you respect your father and you go and celebrate because whatever the father says, you're in agreement with because we're a family and we stick together with one another. And the son says, forget it. I'm not, I'm not in this family. If this is how this family is going to operate, if we're going to welcome these kind of people into our home, Forget it, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And the other son proves himself to be just as big a rebel as his little brother. The father comes out and he entreats him. He begs him to come in. We don't see the words, but it simply says the father came out and entreated him. And then the son answers again for the second time. Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Not only is this older son's heart exposed as a rebel, but it's also exposed that he's just as much a slave as his little brother. He doesn't talk to his father on a level of a father and a son. He didn't say, Dad, tell me what's happened. What, why, why is Junior come home? What's going on? What do you think we ought to do? How can I help you in what you're trying to do with him? He doesn't say any of that. He proves that he's a slave. I've always done everything. I've never disobeyed you. I've always literally enslaved myself to you is the way the Greek phrases it. I've slaved for you. He doesn't see that he's a son any more than his little brother did. 
And yet look at the father's response to the son. First of all, in verse 28, I already said he entreats him, but then look at verse 31. But he says to this older brother, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead. He's alive. He was lost. Now he was found. The story ends with the father offering the same forgiveness and the same restoration to the older brother. He says, son, you've missed it just as badly as your brother has. Don't you see I want to have a son? Everything I have is yours. Look around you. All of this is yours. What's mine is yours. I love you unconditionally. You belong to me. But we had to celebrate. Son, if you want to know what motivates me, what motivates me is my kids. Everything I do is for you. It's fitting that we celebrate. And notice that he doesn't let him off the hook because the older brother says, this son of yours wasted this money. How does the father respond? This brother of yours has come home. Will you see him as a brother? Will you welcome him as a brother? Will you get off your high horse and understand that it's about our relationship with one another and the grace that I've extended to him is the same grace I extend to you? And isn't it interesting that the story stops there? It doesn't say, and the older brother came in and they all lived happily ever. And it doesn't say that the older brother stomped off into the woods and never spoke to his dad again. You know why it doesn't end there is because that's the question for you this morning. It's a question for me this morning. (laughs) We're one of two characters in the story. We're not the father. God is the father in this story. We're not asked to put ourselves in his shoes. We're asked to put ourselves in the shoes of the two sons. And maybe you've wandered off and maybe you've said, you know what? I've done terrible things and God could never forget me. Stop negotiating. As gently, as humbly as I can say, shut up and let God love you and experience his mercy and come home. You couldn't have earned it even if you wanted to. The older brother proves that. And if you're here this morning and you're the older brother and you call yourself a disciple of Jesus and you sit with arms folded and you look down upon people and you judge them because they're not as good as you, understand that you too are a rebel at heart. You're just as enslaved to sin as those folks who do things that outwardly we would all say are not the best choices. And the message to all of us this morning is simply sinner repent. You don't have to be a slave. You can be a son. You can be a daughter. Self-righteous repent. See your sin of pride and rebellion. Father John, who isn't at um, St. Peter's anymore, but I got to know him a little bit when he was the parish priest there, and he had this card he always carried in his pocket. It said, bless those who curse you. They're probably right. And uh, I always thought that was a great card because it describes what the older brother needed to figure out. (laughs) You know what? I've got to see my own heart for what it is. But the invitation is the same from the father. You too can be a child. You too are included in my compassion and my mercy. So the conclusion of the story is to be written. It's to be written in your life. It's to be written in my life. It's to be written on the, the life and the pages of the history of Green Tree Community Church. Where this be a place where sinners are welcome? Where this be a place where anybody and everybody can come through the doors and we will treat them in the same compassion, in the same heart as the Father in heaven who rejoices over them and calls us to love them as he loves. Let's pray.